Good, okay. Welcome to the manifesto. My name's Logan. Today, my guest is Chuck Chisson, MLA for Victoria La Belle. Hi, Chuck. Hi, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Nice weather today. A little, little cold, but... Oh, it's quite cold. It's not awful cold down here in St. John, but you are a lot further north than me. Well, we, we came in at minus 24 this morning, so it's quite cold. That's cold. So, my first question is, you had a heart attack in 2021, correct? Yes, that's and correct. You have criticized Ambulance New Brunswick for their slow response time. I have criticized them for their slow response times. What? But not in relation to my case. In my case, they were actually uh, just offloading a patient at the hospital that's about 300 yards away from my home. <laughs> so they were able to get to me within minutes. Uh, so it, uh, my criticism of them is related to other people's experiences and not my own. It's especially in like small rural communities. They, the response time is slow, pathetic in my opinion. What needs to be done to make sure that people who need an ambulance get an ambulance in, in good time? Well, I, I think what we need to change the whole structure of how we're, we're dealing with, uh, with Ambulance New Brunswick. Uh, Ambulance New Brunswick is paid on a, to perform, to meet service, certain performance metrics. And, and that is to, to have a certain response time, uh, a certain percentage of the time. So by concentrating most of their efforts around the more populated areas, they can, it's easier for them to meet their response times. And there's too many exceptions that are built into the contract. So, for example, if they don't have uh, uh, the proper amount of paramedics to, uh, to, uh, to have an, uh, a truck on the road, then they get an exemption for that. There's just so many things that they get exemptions for uh, that shouldn't. I mean, they, they should be, their, their remuneration should be based on, on, on basically, I would say, people's satisfaction. I, I do, I live in a very small wheel community away from populated centers and I have seen ambulances take 30 minutes to an hour to get to people who need one ASAP. Like, it's, what's the one I'm yeah. looking for? It, I don't want yeah, to say I'm sorry. It's, it's not good. No, it's not, it's not acceptable. And, and, and part of that reason is, is that we have a shortage of paramedics. Uh, and, and we, you know, you, you stop and wonder, why do we have a shortage of paramedics? Is it because uh, the paramedics are not properly remunerated? Or is it because uh, it's not an easy job? Uh, so what we need to do is focus on where we're going to get our paramedics from and make sure that we have enough. And is it okay to be short? You know, if you have a ambulance, New Brunswick, who are meeting their obligation to meet a certain response time, a certain percentage of the time, and they're short, all these paramedics, well, that seems to tell me that there seems to be an issue in the whole contract itself, because I've got actually small ambulance stations around me that are often closed because they don't have any paramedics, so they got no truck on the road. 
And so that's kind of disturbing to me that, you know, we would see uh, areas where there would be no paramedics for an evening or where one area is covering for another area because they don't have paramedics to put a truck on the road. I find that really concerning. Yeah, I, I also find it concerning that the people in the small rural communities are kind of getting forgotten about. Um. Next, you're the transportation critic for the Liberals. Yes, I am. The, the infrastructure in the province is, it's outdated. It was mostly built the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. That's 40, 50 years ago. Do the Liberals have a plan in place if they win government to fix the infrastructure in New Brunswick? Uh, by infrastructure, are you talking buildings or are you talking roads and bridges? Roads and bridges and airports, stuff like that. Yeah, listen, uh, these, these infrastructures, many of them are made to last for, for, for decades. The, the trick is, is to upkeep them properly. If you're not doing regular maintenance on, on, these issue, on these things, such as bridges and roads, if you're not regularly maintaining them, resurfacing them, uh, then they're going to degrade to the point where they have to be rebuilt. And, and I think that's one of the big issues is you can't Put the, uh, push these issues down the road. You have to maintain your roads and you have to do it on a regular basis. If you don't do it, it costs five times more. And the Auditor General said it in one of their reports, it costs five times more to rebuild than it does to, to maintain. So the issue is not whether we need to rebuild all of our roads and bridges. We need to maintain them properly. Yes, there is some infrastructure, some bridges that are extremely old and need to be replaced. But for the most part, most of our infrastructure would just need to be properly maintained and I think we would be okay. Yeah, like, again, I live, I live middle of nowhere and the roads, they have fixed them in recent years, but there's still a lot that are in really, really poor shape. One of the issues, uh, Logan, and I can tell you that, and especially on the rural, the very rural areas, is, is that these roads were not built, <clears throat> excuse me, these roads were not built for today's traffic. And, yeah. and you know, they, they put chip seal on them. And when chip seal first came out, it was really thought of more as a dust control than an actual, uh, you know, uh, treatment uh, to drive on top of. It was more of a dust control measure uh, when chip seal first came out. The issue with some of the older roads, like the back roads, when you're talking back country, is that, uh, they were not built properly. The base is not proper. So there would have to be some work there. And one of the issues that you can see, and, and I get back to the maintenance issue of it, is the ditching alongside all of these rural roads. If the ditching is not done properly and if there's an accumulation of water, then the road itself is going to be, it's basically floating because there's water in the ditches on both sides. So that water is seeping under the road and your road is basically floating. So you have to make sure that your, 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 your surface, your base is dry. And when you're building or replacing these roads, you've got to make sure that the base is built properly. And that is to start with, you know, uh, your, your different grades of aggregate as you get closer to the surface in order to make sure that it's, it's more of a stable surface. So yeah, there are some back back roads that may need more work than others, and there may be spots that need to be fixed. But uh, 
by and large, maintenance is the key, whether it be ditching, whether it be, uh, you know, uh, resurfacing, whether it be uh, regular patching, et cetera, et cetera. Like, uh, here in St. John, we have the, the Harbor Bridge, and people love to complain that they're always fixing it, but if they didn't fix it, it, wouldn't, it would be unusable. So it needs to be repaired every year or every two years to make it usable. And, and, and that's a funny story when you when you use the Harbor Bridge as an example, because the Harbor Bridge uh, actually was a federal bridge for, for quite a long time. And then the province uh, decided to buy it. And I don't know exactly when that happened. But and so now it becomes a province's issue. And uh, and, and I don't know exactly what all the problems are with the Harbor Bridge, but I know that there were issues with it when the province uh, acquired it. Yes, it, it should have kept, it should have still been a toll bridge, but the hires, hires up wanted it not, and I don't, I never understood that. Um, something I want to talk about is the, the northern part of the province has suffered greater than the south in the past couple of decades. They're, like, they're losing jobs, losing population. What needs to be done to help the north thrive like the southern part of the province is? Well, I, I think what we need to see is we need to see the conditions for 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 business to come to the northern to the north uh, improve, and by that I mean we need to have investments in industrial areas. We need you know the province to to help us create those industrial areas, uh, and and we also need some in, some incentives to allow businesses to to actually locate here. Uh, oftentimes, what you see is uh, uh, you know incentives are there and and it brings the, the 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 business into the province but there's no real incentive for them to locate uh, in the north as opposed to in the south or, or, or and for most businesses what they try and do is locate where the population density is the highest which would be what we would call the golden triangle Fredericton, Moncton, St. John. So that's one of the issues is is, is what incentives can we use and and if we look at again if I look at saying infrastructure, industrial parks, uh, you know, quality connections to the main thoroughfares, rail links. These are all things that would help to to allow manufacturers and businesses to locate in rural north that would allow them to be uh, still competitive. Uh, again, the rail link would be something that would be key in, 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 in my area. And, uh, you know, and oftentimes what we have is we have several different roads that will connect a business to the main highway. And when you have different weight restrictions as on, on different roads as you're getting to that highway, it makes it hard for a business or even a farmer to ship their product to market because they've got weight restrictions on the road that takes them to the main road where the weight restriction is much higher. It's a little bit complicated, but there's a, a, there's many, many things that could be done uh, that would help. And a lot of it is in regulation. And some of it is in incentives and some of it is just in helping uh, areas to establish business development areas. Hey, uh I think was it, I'm not sure if it was last week or the week before the Hays government backtracked on their French immersion reform plan. I don't know what you want to call it. What do you think about that that plan that I personally think was disastrous? 
Well, if I look at what they were trying to do, they were trying to do something that was tried before. And, and you know, studies have shown uh, that the very best way to teach somebody a second language is through immersion. And, mm-hmm. and there's more uh, success rate with total immersion. So one of the issues with immersion, if I may, uh, Logan, is when you have uh, French immersion in schools, it needs to have the proper investments and the proper resources to allow students to follow immersion right until graduation. What normally happens is, is they reach high school level and then they start having to look for elective classes based on the career path that they want to take. And if there is no immersion in those elective classes, if they can't find an immersion class, if you know what I mean, then they end up dropping out of immersion because they need, for example, maybe calculus, or maybe they need a certain science that's not available in the immersion stream. So they have to drop out of the immersion stream in order to get the elective they need to go to university to get the degree that they want to get. That's one of the major issues is that it needs to be properly resourced. And if you look at the other end of it in, in the English prime system, you know, the, the contention is that there's streaming in there and it causes, you know, the, 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 the best and the brightest to go into the immersion stream. Well, again, if you're not properly resourcing the English prime system, then you're going to have those issues. And a, a, a big part of it is there's, all of our education system is under-resourced. We need more teachers. We need more school psychologists. We need more guidance counselors. We need more support workers. And we need more teachers. Uh, so the province needs to make the necessary investments in those, in those areas to make sure that we're properly resourced in our education system. Yeah, I, I, was, well, I was an English student my whole way through school and I didn't, the French that I learned, I have forgotten since I left high school three years ago. It didn't stick with me because it wasn't quality education. So if you want me to comment on that, I can. Um, The other thing that we need to do is we need to create an environment where you can uh, actually use the French that you've learned. And, and, and And I can tell you that in in some of the committees I sit on in government, uh, I've had departments before me, and one of the questions I asked them was, how many of your meetings that you have here in Fredericton are held in French? You know, you've, you're investing in French second language for some of your employees, so how many meetings are, are you actually holding in French? And the answer was none. And so if we're teaching people to speak French and they've got and they have no opportunity to actually practice so that they can actually, you know, get a firm grasp of the language, then it's going to be a problem as well. And I, I actually, to the a previous uh, education minister, I spoke to him about, you know, perhaps doing an exchange between students of, an, of the English corner of the province uh, with the French corner and creating a buddy system where where students could connect online and converse in one language or the other so that they could each get a chance to practice uh, their second language. So there's a lot of things we could do to try and, and, and connect the two communities so that each could have the opportunity to, to speak in their second language. And, and I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. Yeah. I, I wish I would have learned more because it would have helped me here in New Brunswick, but 
maybe for maybe my kids will have a good quality French French prime prime French education, prime English education. No, absolutely. Um, public transportation in New Brunswick, it's it's good, but it can be better. Like more buses in the cities, more buses to rural places connect to the big cities, more inner city buses between, say, Fredericton, Moncton, Fredericton, St. John. Do the liberals have a plan to increase public public transportation in New Brunswick? I'm not sure if there's an actual plan at this point, uh, Logan, but I'm going to give you my, my, my thoughts on, on transportation. I, I think we need to work on our public transportation. And yes, we need to have those intercity uh, buses. And that's an important part. We do have that to an extent. And that would be possibly what you're saying is it's okay. And in our three, uh, in our golden triangle, again, you know, Fredericton, Moncton, St. John, we do have public transit. I think where public transit is lacking a lot is in areas like mine, for example, a rural area uh, where our population is a little bit more spread out. You know, we have seniors that live outside of town that can't maybe get to, uh, uh, to their doctor's appointment because they don't have that transportation. Uh, we have people that, you know, are, 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 are basically separated from the, from the center because they don't have the, the transportation. So they rely on, either a friend or, or a relative to give them a ride. Um, so we need to look at what models of transportation are going to be able to work throughout the province. And we need to build a system that's going to accommodate that because the need for public transportation in my area is vastly different from the need in say St. John or Moncton or Fredericton. Uh, we would need perhaps a smaller uh, bus that would be able to go around to my communities and, and pick people up on a, just a regular basis, not necessarily hourly, but, you know, maybe twice a day if they could make a round and get people to and from their their appointments, that would maybe work. I don't know exactly what model that what that model would look like. There are some models that are being tried that that are, you know, proving to, to work. So a lot of work and a lot of study has to be done before you could actually say that there would be a global transportation uh, policy. So uh, I, I'm I'm probably uh, like I said, I'm pretty sure that we don't have a global transportation policy for the province, except to say that we need to look at it a little closer. Yeah, for a, a couple of years ago, I, I can't remember how many, we had uh, we had a bus that went between St. Stephen and St. John twice a day. Once went to St. John in the morning, came back in in the evening. It, people seemed to use it, and then it was it was canceled and. We've never had the option since. And you should have the option to just take like a day trip to St. John without wanting to drive to and from St. John, you know? So, so, so what we need to look at in that case, Logan, is we need to look at where their funding is coming from and, and, and you know, how are they financing this venture? Because these ventures, when you're looking at small local transportation like this, uh, they're not a money maker. They're not something where you're going to be able to be self Self story, self sustaining. It's something that's going to need an influx of money, and and that money has to come either from local government, provincial government, or uh, you know a combination of all three levels of government. So there has to be money. The federal government did allocate money to the provinces uh, for transportation. Uh, 
it's how we allocate it that I think has to be looked at and saying in, in saying can we you know set up a model whereby there will be a steady stream of funding for a smaller uh, transportation uh, like you're talking between Fredericton and St. Stephen. Um, the, the, the surplus that the government announced a few weeks ago, $862 million. It's $777 million last fall, $862 million a week ago. There are many, many problems in New Brunswick that could be solved with extra funding, such as health care, mental health care, uh, transportation, housing, infrastructure. Should the government spend their surplus? And if so, what should they spend it on? Uh, first of all, Logan, I, I, I'm going to qualify your comment of $862 million because the fiscal year uh, in New Brunswick does not end until the end of March. And I would suggest that the, that surplus will be much higher when we reach the end of the fiscal mm-hmm. year, uh, due in, in large part to federal transfers. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've said it, uh, I, I can tell you that, you know, in my speaking in the house in many of the times that I've spoken in the house, I've said, and I always open some of my speeches, especially my budget speech by saying, you know, we have people sleeping in tents in cardboard boxes and under bridges. And yet we have a surplus and that's not that a massive surplus. I mean, it's not, we're not talking several million dollars. We're talking, you know, close to a billion dollars. We need to pay down the debt. That's true. But we also need to look after New Brunswickers. And, and I think that's where we see that, you know, the current government is uh, too laser focused on one side of the equation and not the other. We need to invest, as I said earlier, we need to invest in our education system. We have students that are falling behind, especially since the pandemic. We need to invest in rural Internet so that everybody can be connected mm-hmm. properly to the Internet so that they can work from home or study from home uh, when we have a pandemic. So we need to invest there. We also need to invest in public transit. As I said, we need to invest in in housing. Uh, Rents are going up at an astronomical level. People can no longer afford their apartments. So they're being either forced into slums or on the streets. So we need to invest in that. We need to support those people. Uh, healthcare, we need to be able to show that, uh, you know, we appreciate the healthcare professionals that are there. Uh, during the pandemic, every health professional or almost every health professional in the province got a salary top up, except our nurses. So what message are we sending to our nurses? We didn't top their salaries up. The doctors got a top up. Pretty much everybody else working in, in, the, in the care system got a top up during the pandemic. Nurses got nothing. So we need to show the people that are there that we appreciate them. And whether that be through actually recognizing the overtime that they're working and remunerating for them, uh, and we also need to be investing in recruitment. We've seen a, a pilot project in healthcare this week where they're going to, over a couple of years, be able to bring in 208 nurses. Uh, and why are they doing a pilot? Why are they not just going out and saying, we're going to pay your education uh, to upgrade you? We're going to do this. You know, why make it a pilot? Why are we not going into the high schools and offering scholarships to anybody who wants to be a nurse or a doctor so that in four years from now, we can have maybe a stream of nurses that are coming, you know, from our own area instead of having to go out and recruit them. Why aren't we adding more seats, nursing seats into our schools? Why aren't we making those investments? Those are all good questions, Logan. And, and as I said, it's great to have a massive surplus 
But why cannot, why could we not take part of that surplus and invest it back into the people of New Brunswick so that they have the tools that they need? Long answer. I'm sorry. I like long answers. They're, they're very informative. Um, I interviewed Kevin Arsenault two weeks ago, and something he said has stuck with me. The province is bringing in travel nurses that are getting paid multiple times what the public nurses are, but they're not paying the public nurses anywhere near as much as they should. So why would someone stay in a public hospital when they can go become a travel nurse and make more money? Well, that's kind of yeah, that's kind of an ironic, uh, an ironic uh, comment to make. And the same thing, actually, we're bringing in uh, locum uh, doctors from other areas as well. Uh, and what they're doing there, uh, Logan, is it's an expensive band aid. Uh, instead of mm-hmm. investing and in fixing the solution, they're putting an expensive band aid on it. And I don't think that's the right way to go. Again, I, as I said, we need to invest in our our secondary education, our post secondary education system so that we can have more nursing seats in the province, more medical seats in the province. And, and hey, why would we not even say, if you want to go to university outside of the province and come back, we'll pay for your education as long as you sign a service contract for X number of years. I mean, let's, let's be creative and let's think of ways that we can get as many people coming back to the province who've gone outside to study nursing. Uh, we can retain as many graduates as possible. We know that we lose about 30% of our, our graduate, our nurse graduates every year to other jurisdictions. So why would we not, you know, uh, do everything in our power to retain them rather than pay somebody the exorbitant prices that you were quoting uh, to come in from an outside area as a travel nurse or a travel doctor or a locum of any type. You said 30% of the nursing graduates in New Brunswick leave after they graduate. That's, that's a rough number, but yeah. Third, what, that's a lot. That is a lot of nurses that are leaving. We, we don't graduate uh, actually a, a whole lot of nurses here. Uh, we'd probably be, you know, uh, it, and, and I don't have the exact number in my head, but it, it's in it's in the hundreds. We don't graduate thousands of nurses every year. It's in the hundreds. It's uh, somewhere between the uh, two and 300 nurses per year that graduate in New Brunswick. Not a lot more than that. I've, uh, I think UNB has 208 and, and, and U to M would have 120 or 150 seats, somewhere around there. So let's say 350 nurses, nurse, nurse graduates at, at max. And we, we would probably lose about 30% of that to other jurisdictions. They'll go to Nova Scotia, you know, or they'll go uh, to Quebec and they'll look for maybe better working conditions or, or uh, a better pay. Uh, I've been out of school, it'll be four years come June. And I had a friend who, she really wanted to study nursing here in New Brunswick, but there was not a spot for her to study. She had to go to Nova Scotia. Like we need to have more nursing seats in the universities to have more nurses coming who are educated in New Brunswick and who will stay in New Brunswick. 
you're at, you're not you're you're absolutely right there uh, we need what we need to do is, is look at how we can increase the number of nursing seats we have in the province but then we need to make sure that we can give those people a nursing experience because they do have to do some hands-on in hospital uh, but I've never seen a nursing student in, at the hospital here in my hometown we have a small hospital but why could we not have you know a couple of nursing students come up or even you know I don't know a half a dozen come up and do their their practicum right here at, at our small hospital in Grand Falls. You know, mm-hmm. it's not just the hospitals in the Golden Triangle that could, could uh, provide a practicum for nursing students. It would be any hospital, I would imagine, that would be able to provide you with a basic practicum. So but we need to look at increasing those seats. We need to maybe look at a creative way to maybe use our, our, our community college system to, to start off a nursing uh, a degree. And maybe we could do, a, you know, part of it in the community college system and then finish it off in, in with a practicum and a little bit of uh, the university system. I'm not sure like exactly how all of that could work. But what I'm saying is, is that we're always trying to, to look at what we have instead of trying to, to say, what can we do differently? And, and, and I think that's what we need to see in government. And that's what we need to see from any government is a little bit of creativity and a little bit of out of the box thinking on, on how can we tackle some of these problems? You know, we've been doing the same thing forever and we haven't really gone anywhere. So let's try something different. Let's try something a little more out of the box and let's get creative. My one off comment is the golden triangle. I, I do like the name. It's, it fits well for the Frederick and Monk in the St. John Corridor, but I've never heard the Golden Triangle as a name for it. I do like it. Well, 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 there you go. I've taught you something today. That's what we refer to it as. Here in the North, we refer to it as the Golden Triangle because much of the investment goes to the Golden... When you're looking at infrastructure investment, much of it goes to the Golden Triangle. You know, And when we're, when we're here in the North, we say, well, why is money always going to the Golden Triangle? Well, you know, Can we have a little bit too in the North? So... That's that's for you, uh, Logan. You can refer to it from now on as the Golden Triangle. Uh, last fall, the there was municipal reform. It reduced the entities from three hundred and forty to eighty-nine. I live in one of the small rural communities that were amalgamated into into forming Eastern Charlotte. What do you think about the municipal reform that happened last fall? Well, I think that overall, if you look at municipal reform, I think it's a, it's not a bad thing. I think it was rushed, though. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of nuts and bolts that were not worked out ahead of time that are going to come back and, and haunt the whole process. Uh, but it's something that had to happen. We, we needed to get down. We had way too many entities and really no governance in most of them, mm-hmm. uh, especially some of the smaller ones. So we needed to look at that and we needed to, to, to do something to try and reduce those entities and, you know, give communities, I guess, what you could call economy of scale. Uh, but the important part was to do it right, to listen, to make sure that, you know, communities knew what was happening before it was happening and to make sure that the proper supports were put in place. Um, you know, uh, I look at some of the areas that I've been in touch with mayors and that what they're telling me is, for example, we need to amalgamate three fire departments, but, and we need, but we need to hire a consultant to, to figure out how to best go about doing that. But we don't have money to do that. So, you know, those things should have been thought of in advance and the government should have been 
the you know the Ministry of Local Governance should have been saying, okay, we know that you're going to need to do a, a study on how you can amalgamate your fire departments together, how you can you know handle this problem and that problem, and we're going to give you the funding you need to do that. Uh, that wasn't done up front. So all of, like I said, all of those things that were overlooked because this was rushed are, are starting to surface now. And, and, you know, I think the next year will be a rough year. So there'll be a little bit of a rough patch, but I, I think it's, you know, at the end of the day, I think it'll be okay. Yeah, I I still don't know how I feel about municipal reform. I do agree with Josh, and I, I do like the having a, a, a town council and having a mayor for the first time in my life. But I do, there are problems with it. And I feel like we're losing local identity with it. Uh, to an extent, you may be, you know, you could maybe say that you're losing local identity. Um, I think what's being asked is, is, you know, can we create a new identity? Uh, if you look at, uh, I'm going to use my own as an example. Uh, so the new entity that I'm in is called the Regional Municipality of Grand Falls. And that encompasses, you know, the, the community of St. Andres, the community of Drummond, uh, and, and then some of the outlying DSL areas. Um, the community of St. Andre it will still be called St. Andre because people around here will never refer to it as Grand Falls, you know, because it's in a certain area. And the same with Drummond. Uh, so I guess on paper, yeah, you could say that you're losing your identity, but you know, if you look at the positive side of it, you have an opportunity to build a, a new identity and, and, and a stronger identity. I'm just, I'm just repositioning myself. I can see the sun in my camera and I don't want that. That's to... okay. I, I'm okay. There we go. Um, we talked, we, we did talk about housing earlier briefly. But like rents are sky high, affordable rents are non-existent in housing prices that have gone through the roof since COVID. What should be done to relieve the housing crisis and to make sure that people have a safe place to live in? So there's a few things that we've talked about as, as an opposition. And one of the things we talked about was the rentals tribunal. Uh, as it stands currently, uh, it's up to the tenant. If they get an unfair rent increase, it's up to the tenant to approach the rentals tribunal uh, mm -hmm. to try and get the, the whole thing regulated. And the rentals tribunal can maybe say, okay, well, you'll have to put that rent over three years. That's the current system. What we would like to see is that any landlord wanting to increase the rent over a certain a certain threshold would have to apply to the rentals tribunal. So the onus is put on the individual now. Many, many people, you know, there's many people who are, you know, maybe less educated, less savvy about these things, don't know what their rights are, have no idea even how to get a hold of the rental rentals tribunal. So why are we putting the onus on them? You know, when if some if a if a landlord who has multiple units wants to raise the rents over a certain threshold, then why wouldn't it be the onus be on him to approach the rentals tribunal and say, I'm looking for this type of an increase in rent and here's my justification. Similar to when the uh, you know, NB Power wants to put up their rates, we don't complain that our rate is too high. 
they have to go through the EUB, the Energy Energies and Utilities Board, to justify their rate increase. So why is it not the same for rent? So that's one of the things that we're looking at. We thought that there should have been some protection in place. We thought that some sort of rent cap should have been maintained for at least a little longer till we could stabilize all of this. So uh, I'm not saying a permanent rent cap, but I think there needed to be some type of rental control. Uh, and perhaps a rent cap in the short term uh, would have been good to see it maybe for another year just so that we could get a handle on our on our situation. Because the situation is, is that we don't have enough rental units in the province anymore. Our vacancy rate is very low. And when the vacancy rate is very low, then, you know, like any commodity, when, when you're in short supply, the prices go up. Um, so we need to encourage building for sure. And uh, this government, uh, you know, I'll give them a little, some credit. They have uh, taken some steps uh, tax-wise to give incentives uh, to build more apartments. However, the cost of building is through the roof, as we all know. So even if you're building new apartments and you're getting a little bit of a tax break, uh, the rent is still going to be anywhere from $1,200 to you know, $2,000 a month, depending upon the unit. You can't build cheap apartments anymore that you can rent under a thousand bucks. And so that's one of the things that we have to look at. How can we get more affordable housing into the market? One of the things we can, we can do is, and it's being done is give some subsidies to be able to build subsidized housing. But again, the subsidized housing, and I'll give you an example, it's by region. So in my zone, for example, uh, social development will subsidize a rental unit uh, up to about 600 bucks. Well, you can't even get a pup tent for 600 bucks anymore around here. Like, you know, a one bedroom apartment is anywhere from a thousand to $1,500 a month. So there are no rent, there are no more rental units that can be subsidized. And as a matter of fact, many landlords are, once their contract within, with NB housing is up, will jump out of their con, will not renew their contract so that they can get market rate for their apartment. So, you know, we need to look at, are we giving enough to subsidize the, these apartments? Do we have enough? I know that there's a plan out to build a hundred more units, uh, you know, government owned units, which hasn't happened for, I think it's 30 or 40 years since I actually think since the seventies. So it's probably been even more, but we haven't had any government owned buildings, uh, built and and that's going to happen so that'll take a little bit of the strain off and the government has committed to actually repairing a lot of the units that are sitting empty right now uh, but we need to look at other creative ways like maybe community co-ops maybe you know uh, some sort of uh, cooperative movement where we can get uh, you know just citizens groups to form boards or nonprofits to form some type of board where they could take on uh, you know housing that wouldn't be for profit so, uh, you know, when you take the profit equation out of it, that brings the price down quite a bit. So there's a, a lot of ways, and I think housing needs to be attacked on, on, on more than one front. Yes, the, the, the rent cap, when that was introduced, I think last May, I'm like, this is a great idea. It's going to help people. And then come December, they were like, and we don't need it anymore. There's no need for a rent cap. I found that to be outrageous. That they said that there was no need for a rent cap. Well, there's certainly a need uh, to at least have some kind of control on it. Uh, I've got people that have been calling me up with 40% increases and 50% increases. And there's been, uh, you know, the odd one that's actually 
you know, almost double. And, and I think, again, if you had those, uh, a system in place whereby the landlord would have to go to the rentals tribunal to justify their, their increase, you might see them become a little more reasonable. And, and, you know, uh, a rent cap, if you put it too low, you know, what, what, where's the right percentage? Is it 3.8? Is it five? Is it 8%? Or, you know, I think there needed to be some kind of control. I'm just not sure where the rent cap should have been. They based it on the consumer price index of the, the previous year when it was, uh, it was low and then everything, you know, prices for everything shot through the roof. And so it's to get the right number when you're going to, if you're going to do a rent cap. But I think the other part of that is, is that you have to make sure that when you have somebody that's trying to raise their rent and, you know, you, you deem it to be a little unreasonable that they could, they should be able to justify it. You know, like, Obviously, they need to make some profit. That that's a given. Uh, people don't build apartments uh, to break even, so they need to make a profit. But we need to make sure that they're they're making a reasonable profit and not an outrageous profit. A um, uh, story was reported by CBC, I believe, in January, showing that the province changed the way that they count prisoners to include people serving their sentences in the community. They use that those numbers to justify a forty million dollar new prison in Fredericton. Do you think that a new prison needs to be built in New Brunswick? Well, well, well. First of all, uh, you know, I'm I'm going to talk about what we where we need to invest money, and that is in in rehab. So, what you're talking about is a provincial jail, and actually not a prison. So a provincial jail differs from, from a prison uh, based on the crimes. So the more severe crimes like murder, bank robbery, et cetera, et cetera, they go to federal penitentiary. Um, and then the smaller crimes, uh, drug offenses, many drug offenses, not all, but many drug offenses, you know, theft and, and that sort of thing, uh, serve their time in a provincial da- dra- jail. So a lot of it's drug, drug-related, uh, drug-related theft, drug-related use, all of that sort of stuff. And what we see is, again, and you, you touched on it briefly in the, in the beginning, why are we not investing more in mental health? Why are we not investing more in drug rehabilitation? Why are we not investing more in getting people off the street? Why, instead of spending $40 million on a jail, why are we not looking at the root cause of the problem and making investments there so that we can go to the root of the problem instead of saying, well, let's just lock them up. You know, a homeless guy went and broke into somebody's shed, stole his chainsaw, you know, took, stole his lawnmower, or whatever. Uh, let's throw him in jail. Well, why is he homeless in the first place? Does he have mental health issues? Is that why he's homeless? Why are we not addressing those? Um, you know, is if, if there's no mental health issues, is it just, you know, what could we do to get that person back into being a productive citizen? How could we invest in that? So in my mind, I say we don't need that jail. I think we have capacity right now, uh, mm-hmm. enough capacity. I think what we need to do is start investing in the front end and say, how can we keep these people from going to jail? Where can we invest money to keep them from committing those crimes in the first place? Someone that I interviewed, I, I can't remember the, the name now, they said, we don't have a prisoner problem, we have a mental health problem. 
I agree with that 100%. No, absolutely. We, 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 we don't, uh, the issue is, is that we don't have anything in place uh, for mental health. We, we have some resources, but they're scarce. We don't have enough uh, resources for mental health. In, in many areas, unless you can afford your own psychologist that's going to cost you hundreds of dollars you know, per visit, uh, then you're out of luck. And, and I can tell you in my area here in the north, uh, if you have a mental breakdown in a public place, well, the police will pick you up and they'll bring you to the regional hospital where you'll spend the night in their psychiatric ward and, and you'll basically be let out the next day. There's no follow-up, no, no help. So what we need to do is invest money in mental health and we need to be able to provide people with the help when they need the help. And, and, you know, as I said, not everybody can afford hundreds of dollars per hour. Not everybody has insurance that covers that type of help. So we need to make sure that it's accessible to everybody, you know, regardless of your income, regardless of who you are. You know, we need to look after people's mental health. And, and you know, a big part of the problem is that, I mean, there's people that are living on the street for no other reason, but they have mental health problems and they just, they, they just won't function indoors. Um, the next election is the fall of 2024. I can never remember. I don't know if it's September or October, sometime in there. I can't remember which. Um, the liberals are going, are making a strong push to win back government for the first time since losing in 2018. <clears throat> Higgs is seen as unpopular, out of touch with the people. What do the liberals have a strategy to win back voters? who voted against them in 2018 and Well, listen, I think this strategy is, and it's not, it's not a big secret. I mean, the secret is to present the alternative and say, you know, exactly where we think that, and, and I've explained a lot of that to you today, where we think that they're missing the boat, what we think they could be doing more of. You know, we look at, uh, you know, the inter, interdisciplinary clinics that they, they said they were going to save the healthcare system. Well, they've only got a, several of them up and running. Why are they not pushing them out the door as fast as they can? So, you know, we're, what we're saying is, is that we understand that there's all these issues and we, you know, we applaud some of what they're doing, but they're not moving. There's no sense of urgency. So what we want to do is position ourselves as a viable alternative, an alternative that understands the issue and understands the urgency of the issue and is willing to take action to address the issues in an urgent fashion. I, my, one of my final questions is, what does the future hold for you? Do you plan on running for re-election in 2024? Well, I haven't committed to 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 uh, to actually running uh, again uh, at this point. You know, I, I'm still weighing that option. Uh, I am uh, I am getting up there in years, so there is a there is a possibility of retirement. Uh, however, uh, I am excited about the Liberal Party. So, mm-hmm. you know, barring anything major, my plan would most likely be to run again. Uh, I'm excited where we're going. I'm excited with our new leader. I think we have a leader who, just as I said earlier, who is capable of thinking outside of the box, who is capable of being creative and who who doesn't accept the status quo. So for me, that that's all important things. And so I'm excited. I'm excited to, to just uh, 
just what she brings to the table and, and the new perspective that she's going to bring. And, and, and I think the new, the new way of doing things that she's going to be able to bring to government. So it, it, it would be very hard for me not to. Uh, however, I'm just, again, just not 100% there yet. I, uh, a comment from me is I interviewed Susan. She was my first person I interviewed for the radio show Flush Podcast that we're doing. She was, she was lovely to talk to. Absolutely lovely to talk to. Well, she's a very smart person, and, and I have a lot of faith in her, and, and I can tell you this, that uh, I did support her leadership bid, and I'm proud to say that I did, and I'm still proud that I did. I, there's nothing that's changed there. She will do an awesome job for New Brunswickers, and I'm just excited to see where she's going to take us. My final question is the question that I ask everyone I interview. What is your opinion on first past the post, and do you favor changing the way that we vote? I don't know a whole lot about uh, all of the alternative systems. Uh, there's proportional representation I've heard of and, and a few other areas where they, where they, uh, people want to go. So I guess for me, I don't know, the status quo seems to be, seems to be working. Uh, but I would not necessarily be opposed to changing it uh, or, you know, there's been calls to lower voting age and stuff like that. And, and I think all of these things need to be looked at for sure. I think we need to look at other alternatives like proportional representation and, and, and what are the, what are the merits of it? And what are the, the, there's pitfalls to everything, right? There's ups and downs for everything, but I don't know enough about all of the alternatives to actually, to give you a real good opinion, just to say that I, you know, like I've been in politics since 2014 and, I don't know. Uh, it, it, it's working right now. I don't see uh, our democracies are not failing, but, you know, is it the right way to go? Is there another alternative? Possibly. So it's, that's kind of where I'm at with that. Is there anything you, you want to say to the people listening to this? Well, listen, I just want to say uh, again, uh, you know, first of all, I'd like to thank you for, for having me today and, and for allowing me to give you uh, uh, some of my perspective, but then again, some of the party's perspective on some of these, some of these important issues. There's many, many important issues facing our province. And I think that we need to make some targeted investments and, and make sure that we're looking after the people of New Brunswick because, you know, it's it's very easy to bank up a great big surplus and, and pay off the debt. But at the end of the day, there's people in New Brunswick who are suffering and, and those people need to be looked after as well. And future generations will judge us on how we looked after the less fortunate among us. So to me, uh, it's important that we do so. So I, I guess that I'll leave you with that. Well, Chuck, uh, thanks for taking time of your day to do this. And Sorry for the technical problems I had earlier. Well, listen, uh, if you couldn't solve them, then we were out of luck because I'm not a very technical person. <laughs> so I'm glad you were able to solve them. And, and again, Logan, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Have a good day. Okay. You too, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, Logan. Yeah. Would you, uh, where can I hear this? Um, I have some episodes to edit. But once I edit it, I post it on Spotify. I'll send you the link when, I, when it goes live. All right. You're the man. Thanks.
Thank you. Okay, bye. bye. Today, my guest was Chuck Chasel, MLA for Victoria Lavalle. Thank you for listening to Manifesto. My name is Logan. Bye-bye.